Hello, hello, and welcome to the Midlife Pilot Podcast. This is the podcast all about flight and flying in midlife and all of the things that go along with it. It's episode 30, and tonight is going to be a fun one, kind of a chill hang experience, an Ask Us Anything episode where anything goes, and we'll talk about whatever uh, the folks joining us live tonight in the chat room want to talk about tonight. So it should be a good time. I am Chris Moran, the Midlife Pilot on YouTube, and I'm joined by my friend, musician, uh, audio engineer, filmmaker, drone pilot, uh, record collector, um, all things 80s, uh, including cars for Music Row. It's uh, Brian Siskind. Good evening, sir. Good evening. It's glad. Uh, I'm glad. It's good to be back, and uh, it's good to see you back in the hangar with. The OG 52 Lima. Uh, for those on the audio podcast that'll be getting this, uh, if you're familiar with Chris's channel, you know this plane very well. And um, uh, it's it's kind of uh, I look. I, I think the Cherokee 235 is great, you know. But it's kind of like you know when you see your friends grow up out of high school, then they go to college, and then they get a BMW or something. You're like, good for you. I'm glad you've got a BMW. But you're always going to be the guy that drove the Honda Accord that had the really cool stereo in it. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's good to see you next to five, two Lima. Well, it's, it's definitely good to be back near her again. If those of you, a lot of you haven't probably heard the story yet. There's a video coming out here this week about it. Um, this airplane has been out of commission since October. Uh, it had, uh, this is a plane that I learned to fly in. It was the original plane that we put in the flying club that I run here. And, have a lot of training activities and stuff that go on in it, and it had an unfortunate um, incident on landing uh, on a student solo uh, that it ended up with a prop strike on the runway on landing and um, bent the prop up. The engine, the, the saving grace of the entire thing was that this engine was due for an overhaul, and it was actually scheduled for like now, uh, but the owners of the plane agreed to like, let's just do the overhaul early. And so we put the thing down, got a whole new engine. We did, we didn't do the overhaul, the existing one. We did one of those like exchange deals where like we bought another engine, an overhauled engine, they shipped it to us. We put it on here and then we're shipping the old engine back. So it's, the plane has about 20 hours on it now since the uh, overhaul. It's fully broken in. It's back to normal operation. And the video is coming out this week. I put hour number six on the new engine during the break-in. So there'll be some, uh, break-in, uh, shenanigans uh to show in this video this week so that's been a really cool experience i've learned a ton about that process and what all goes into like swapping out an engine and all the things that go along with it but super great to have it back it's uh it is nice and i also noticed some folks commenting it's warmer in the hangar tonight i'm in short sleeves last episode i did from another hangar here on the field and it was like two degrees and i was freezing the whole night so it is much more uh palatable this evening here in uh, west virginia Man, well, uh, that's awesome. I can't wait to see what uh, what you make around telling the story of the renaissance of of five two Lima, and it's such a um, I don't know. It's just it, that plane has a vibe, you know. So it's just cool that it's back and that you've got uh, you know more, even more power, more horsepower. <laughs> that's right. Same rate of horsepower, but it's definitely making power that it wasn't before. There's no question. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then also real quick, I wanted to do a, uh, before we forget, I wanted to shout out, um, and if we didn't last time, 
Uh, congratulations to Steve Cross, um, who is a buddy of mine here who passed his private pilot check ride um, and has been, you know, finally able to get out and uh, fly his friends around and, you know, all of that, that stuff. And, and it's been really cool to see, um, see that happen. And then also big congrats to uh, also Evan for passing his instrument check ride. And um, for those that are not in the discord, I think everybody should be in the discord or try to try to find your way there. We'll, we'll not, we'll, we'll not make it too gated for you, but uh, we have a group of people there that are, you know, pretty uh, good with sharing knowledge and encouraging each other. And uh, rumor has it, there's going to be a debrief. I think it's tonight after this podcast where uh, Evan and his son, who's a CFI are going to break down the instrument check ride that he just experienced while it's still fresh. And so I being an instrument student, uh, very interested in, in uh, taking the knowledge where I can get it. And, you know, I was talking to you earlier, Chris, you know, but, and I've mentioned this probably many times, but I'll continue to mention it, that when I did my private pilot training, I didn't have a group, a peer group. I didn't have the community. I didn't have the support in the ways that I see kind of happening right now. Um, I had your channel, which made me feel connected to the idea that being a midlife pilot is going to be, you know, challenging, but you can totally Mm -hmm. do it. Um, And then I had, you know, my other resources, but um, you know, it's just really cool to see things where everybody's connecting in the background and sharing information and and helping move people forward is it's really what it's all about. And then the last thing I want to mention is uh, we're going to, we were talking earlier and and I'll share this with the audience, but um, you know, one of the things that I want to try to wrap into the podcast, at least touch on in every episode, if we can, if we have time uh, is something that is a common touch point or point of consideration around safety. And, you know, we are not CFIs and we are not here to tell you authoritatively these things, but we can source information from other people that have written great books and then we can have little conversations about them. And so there was a, there was a bit in the killing zone uh, that I know many of you read, have read um, that I was looking over. I had this on my coffee table. People come in and they just think, what is this? You know, but uh, that's uplifting. Yeah. Let's go fly. So anyway, I, I, I just, you know, I've read it twice all the way through and then I still kind of pick it up and kind of randomly just glance, you know, if I have a couple of minutes, I just always want to keep that stuff fresh um, and, uh, I came across, uh, uh, one of the sort of tales in it today that I thought might be cool to kind of just read the, the scenario and the probable cause. And then, uh, maybe we can talk about it a little bit and people in the chat can, can chime in and, and our audio podcast people that are our primary audience here can benefit from maybe just being reminded that some of these things can, can happen. And, and the scenario that we'll get into it struck me because it was the same kind of plane that I fly generally. And in a, it was a situation where it just seems like, wow, that's a, an entirely possible thing that you could get into. <laughs> so mm-hmm. anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that uh, later. Um, but for I now, keep, I keep my copy of the killing zone in the airplanes uh, on the passenger seat. So that when I take people with me for the first time, I just have them look through it while we're, you know, while I'm getting started up and we're on the ground and I see if we actually make it to take off or not before they say like, you know, on second thought, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get out. And, yeah. You know, you I'm can, 10 pages in. This looks not great. Yeah. yeah. You can knock yourself out. Yeah. So, uh, so cool. You know, and then, uh, otherwise I'll just really quickly update you on what I've been doing, which is, 
Uh, I, I spent all day Sunday flying and all day Monday flying. It was the first good weather we had here in a long time. And I flew 7.7 hours in two days um, and had a great time. I went to Sykeston, Missouri. It's always really cool to fly across the Mississippi River. And then we go to the Lamberts where you get bread thrown at you. It's a great restaurant. And then, um, and then, uh, and that was with a person that had never flown in a small plane before. So that was a really great thing. Uh, and then I came back and then did a night flight or a sort of evening to night flight with another friend that had never been in a, a small plane before. Did a little downtown scenic tour and all that. That was really special. And then Monday I took another friend of mine up who had maybe been up in one plane a long time ago. Uh, and we went down to uh, Alabama and went to Guntersville, Alabama, which is eight alpha one. Someplace I've been trying to go to for a while, finally did. Beautiful waterfront, runway, uh, beautiful approach. And uh, got there. We were planning on getting a crew car, going into town. And then the uh, the guy at the FBO says, uh, no, sorry, no crew car. The last person backed it into a dumpster and smashed the back window out. Wow. So uh, we got back in the plane, went over to Coleman. And um, then we go to the restaurant. They have a restaurant on the field there. It's like this old kind of diner that's up in the top of the FBO. We're super excited, pretty hungry. Go up there, and uh, and the woman says, "Oh gosh, sorry, we're all out of propane. Uh, we can't cook oh. anything." <laughs> and my buddy was like, "Is this what you're talking about? Like where you just sort of have to kind of go with the flow?" <laughs> you know, I'm like, "Exactly." We got a crew car. They were super welcoming. We went into town, had an awesome time. And then there's this place there called the Ave Maria Grotto that is the strangest, most beautiful place. But it's basically the shortest story version is that in the 1800s, uh, there was a huge German influx there and uh, the sort of Catholic influx there. And these monks made this huge sort of park in the forest that is of the, uh, with all these miniature architectural models and things that are of such detail that it's kind of incredible. Look up Ave Maria Grotto and you'll, you'll be amazed at what it is. And then they also have bread and cookies. And so we bought some bread, bought some cookies, flew back to Nashville and everything was great. So the weather, it was one of those things where the weather was just, there was never even a question about the conditions, you know, it was just great both days. So I just wanted to share. I that. saw the video of your landing at, uh, at uh, Nashville international, which looked incredibly cool. You flew. Oh yeah. To- 7.7 hours in two days. I was just looking at my logbook and four flight. I haven't flown 7.7 hours in the last 90 days. I'm 5.6 mm. over the last 90. So you, you in two days, um, did 90 days worth of work. Uh, on my, <laughs> well, you know, on my, hey, making up for lost time because, uh, I, there was definitely about a, I had a more than 30 day lapse there because of just end of Christmas plane went into annual, all these things. So even, you know, but you're a better pilot than I am. So, it's easier for you to keep your skills up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, I, man. Suppose, I suppose if you want to go that route, um, got some new so that's, folks. That's, in the what that's what we're here to debate tonight, Chris. Who's yep, better? We'll, we'll, we'll compare our, um, compare our pilotage skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got uh, a couple of new folks in the chat tonight. I see uh flying past 50 is here. Uh, mm-hmm. he says, uh, Hey, all 57 year old student pilot with 9.5 hours. And he says, newbies like me count half hours like toddlers yeah. count half year old. Hey, every, right. every, uh, every 10th counts. Every 10th counts. So yeah, welcome. That is awesome. 
I'm glad to have you and glad to hear you're flying. I can't wait to hear more about uh, all the stuff you've got going on. It's a good reminder, too, for everybody who's hanging out in the chat tonight. Definitely post your questions and stuff we want to talk about uh, tonight in that in the chat here, and we'll make sure to get to as much of it as we can over the next 45 minutes or so. And we have another one here from uh, Les. Uh, says, long-time listener, first-time chatter. Uh, 62-year-old PPL student training at... KSNA, a very busy class, Charlie, in the busiest Tracon in the country, SoCal. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah. 62. I mean, you know. SNA, uh, I've spent some quality time in the flight sim um, with Pilot Edge air traffic control uh, at (laughs) SNA. That's in their zone. And so I've I've done a bunch of uh, simulator stuff uh, in and around SNA online. (laughs) <laughs> man that that's yeah i mean that's that looks like um a lot more challenging navigation and control conversations than what we have around here oh for um, sure so oh, there was a question that was early in the thread um and i may have lost it but let me see here I think it was from Josh. Yes. Yeah. 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 Is it the one that uh, just got reposted by uh, Tedder? Fast forward five years. Yeah. 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 Fast forward five years. Where do you want to be in your aviation life is the question. Five years from now, where do you want to be in your aviation life? You go first while I think about it. I think we and Brian and I were talking about this on the phone earlier today. I um, and it's actually there's another question that just came in that cracked me up that I wanted to get to as well from uh, uh, Wheel Air Rentals, who said uh, this is along the same lines. How come you don't post many flying videos anymore? Mm. Um, probably both both fair and slightly related questions. So I have come to this thing like where I'm kind of content in my not content. You're kind of in this midlife stage, right? Where like life is still super busy. I've got my youngest is graduating high school this year and you know, I'm in the middle of my career and I've got I mean, a lot of irons in the fire, like everybody does. And so like I was, I gung ho, gung ho aviation, got my private pilot certificate. And now it's kind of settled into like, I guess kind of where I thought aviation would be for me, which is kind of like a um, super enjoyable um, hobby that I love. And I've told a lot of people this, I may have talked about on the podcast too, like running, like being involved in this flying club that we have going here. And like, this is all aviation related for me and has, has become as much fun and as much of a passion as actually flying is like, right. Like watching other people fly and keeping this thing running so that other people have access to planes and just seeing people get there. You know, we had two new solo students in the past couple of weeks who've soloed for their first time. And, you know, these things have all become equally as um, kind of enjoyable for me to just kind of be part of that. And so it's kind of become when time allows or when circumstances allow to fly and it makes sense and it's a, it's great to do. I just have been flying less and I've become super okay with that. I'm making the flights that I take count, you know, and kind of be what I want them to be. And then, um, so a lot of things have slowed down. I have a lot of footage and I do have good intentions here of getting uh, back kind of on a, on a publishing schedule and getting content out there, but I think it's going to shift a little bit from maybe what it had been before into more of the like, the people I'm flying with, people I, you know, 
the relationships that come from flying probably more stuff around the club and things that we're doing here and um so it's going to change a little bit in five years i would think in five years i will have I will have done my instrument, I would think, in five years. Um, a lot can change in five years. I mean, a lot's changed for me in the last year or two. Um, so I would think, but I still think I'll be recreationally just kind of enjoying it as the hobby that it is for me. And um, I have certainly slowed down a bit um, in the last six to eight months uh, than I had maybe intended to, but it's working with my life schedule and just kind of the, where things are at right now. And I'm not trying to force it or be stressed about it. And, you know, it's just, um, it's going to be what it is. And um, I still love it. There's no, none of that has changed. Like, it's not like I'm saying, Oh, I don't like this as much anymore. None of that has changed. It's just availability and time like everyone else. I think. I think it also makes sense. Well, I was just to comment on what you said, you know, I, I think that it makes sense that when, you know, you go, like you said, gung ho through your, tr- your training to get, get it done. And then you've got the initial sort of, uh, I've got my license now and I'm going to use it to, you know, do things. And you, it is a license to learn. So you're getting out there to kind of cement your knowledge and go through the experiences that you need to go through to understand how to, you know, things we've talked about, you know, they don't teach you how to go to an airport and deal with this or, you know, whatever. So right. going through all of those experiences and then, you know, taking up your family and your friends and just kind of getting all that kind of locked in. And then you, you know, cause I can relate to this, you know, when I first got my license, I, I still wanted to, wanted to be flying at the same clip or frequency that almost that I'd been training. Cause I was so concerned with any kind of atrophy of my skills or, I didn't work this hard to let, let something slide or to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also kind of a big jump, you, your consciousness, right? To get out there. People don't realize, you know, we've done an episode of sort of like you got your private pilot license, you know, now what? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's that feeling of kind of uh, almost disembodiment after you're out of the rhythm of training, you know, and then you're just kind of out there. You almost have, uh, it's almost like, <laughs> I'm not saying it's like being a prisoner or something, but it's like, you almost kind of don't know how to make it on the outside, right? Like you got to figure out how to, how to sort of adjust your, your, your mindset. And so I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, you're still, it's not like you're not flying. And when you do fly, you are being safe and you still feel proficient and you're not going, getting outside of yourself or letting things atrophy to a point to where you're, you know, you're scaring yourself or losing your, your stick and rudder skills or decision-making or anything like that. So, you know, I think it makes total sense that there's this kind of this, there's this kind of a denouement to the, um, to the whole tale. That's right. And I think it's utilitarian in a way too, because I've, I have been flying for work. I mean, I've been flying to go to places that I need to go for work. Um, and you know, I had, had, had an incident the last trip I took, had a coworker with me, lost an alternator in flight, had a diversion to Charlottesville. Like all of these things were first. And to your point, Brian, I think there is like, I told you earlier, I still feel like, I still feel like, um, when I go out and fly, I, um, still am 
I haven't lost the things. It's, I haven't forgotten how to do the things. I'm still find myself making the right choices and doing things the right way, and sure. um, still understand how things work. Kind of like Scott Scott Gleason just asked this the same question. Do you get nervous when you've been away from flying, like your skills with the plane, etc.? Uh, so far, it hasn't happened for me. Um, I haven't I haven't felt that when I've gone out again after a, a layoff and thought, well, shoot, I don't know what I'm doing. It hasn't as much of that happens, you know. Even when you look, I'm flying three different airplanes now. A 150 and a 172 and the 235 and so they're all different in their own ways it's as much as that every time you get in i, I do find myself so having to check like wait what are my speeds i have to think you know what are they in this plane again like you know this is oh yeah yeah you know and have to double check the checklist on like what are my speeds in this plane and what are my things and, yeah but no i haven't got to that point yet where i felt like um that well, it's a and, problem and you know for scott also i'd like to say that you know for what chris is saying here keep in mind chris you know you you were a person that was reasonably timid in your early training uh, because you have a fully formed frontal lobe, <laughs> and and there were moments where that I think are very relatable for a lot of people where it's like, hey man, I went I went out to the plane. I had every intention of soloing today and getting another solo hour, and I got all my stuff set up and I was all ready to go, and I just didn't wasn't feeling it, and I just felt a little freaked out, or I just I don't know, I just had a weird mental block. And I just decided not to fly, you know, mm-hmm. so you've gone from that to now being in a place of like, yeah, I can fly. I can not fly for a month and pick it back up. And it's, it's, you know, granted, like you're not going to do that. Uh, you're still going to have decision-making based in the, the idea that, okay, maybe this is not the thing. Like, I'm not going to go from not flying for two months or whatever to taking my family on a big trip and going to a lot of unfamiliar places or I don't know. You know what I mean? Right. Like, exactly. Not, so there's a lot of factors there, but anyway, so we'll get to some other stuff here. Um, but real quick, my, my five-year plan is to, uh, I'm a freelancer. And so I don't even know how I'm going to have an income on a month to month basis. My five-year <laughs> plan is to just be functional and vaguely able to fly. Um, but I am working on my instrument rating and I do have some, some, uh, some schemes and some plans, uh, that I'm, that I'm working on to, start making some concerted steps in that way. So um, I have, and you know, there's a lot to accomplish there, but aviation life in five years, I would love to be in a place where at least maybe I've figured out how to have a steady enough income to where I feel confident enough to get into maybe a partnership uh, with a plane. Cause I'm in a rental kind of partnership kind of thing right now with four other pilots and the owner. And even though I don't get any equity in it or whatever, that seems to be like the right, situation uh to to be in so um all that being said i mean i'm you know i don't know i saw that piper tri pacer on trade a plane for twelve thousand (laughs) dollars i was like i would fly that thing to mexico like you know (laughs) i don't care uh granted it probably needs about forty thousand dollars worth of work but you get the idea I, i hope to own a plane in five years in some way yeah for sure uh, another question from the chat room tonight, uh, flying past 50 says, uh, m- to me, midlife pilot, I've seen a few videos with your daughter flying with you. Are your kids interested in learning to fly? My, uh, son who you've not met on the channel is absolutely not interested in getting in a small airplane ever, but my daughter, uh, Cecilia, who you've seen in a bunch definitely is very much interested and is so far ahead just has such a great head start just for the amount of time she's been with me she's actually flown i've i've let her fly left seat in both the 172 and the 150 a few times with me um and 
do some things and do some maneuvers. We've done some stall. I mean, we've done we've done some stuff together. Um, and she's got a real good concept already in her mind of just the air, how the airplane, what how it works. Um, that I think she would be great at it, and she wants to do it. She's going to college in the fall, so um, she's local though. She's uh, staying here uh, in Morgantown, the WVU, and. I think once all that kind of gets settled in and ha- find out how schedule is going to work and stuff, um, she definitely wants to start training. She's actually she applied for some aviation training scholarships. Um, ah, cool! Uh, and some things. So we'll see. We'll learn in the fall in the um, the the spring this year uh, if any of those pan out. So I, she's definitely interested. Yeah, she definitely wants to learn to fly. That is awesome. Yeah, I, you know, I think that she's clearly a natural and kind of has the uh the she has the bug on some level you can just kind of you can just tell for sure she's a natural to it um so uh so cool um now uh maybe since we have a a little bit of a break here or something we gotta find the other questions but um i figure we'll do our little uh i don't know what we're calling this but it's it's like story time with with Brian. Story with Brian. You put your reader, you put your reading glasses on, and like uh, that's slide them down your nose, and like yeah, I don't. I would show the pictures, and so um, all right. So you guys, everybody, everybody, listen to this, and then uh, chime in with any thoughts you have. But this is just this is a scenario that stuck out to me because, like I said, it's the same, basically the same plane I, I am usually flying. Um, so. So out of page 95 in the killing zone. And I'll, I'll make this quick while you guys are throwing in some other comments and questions and things. Um, so South Lake Tahoe, California, the pilot began this takeoff from the beginning of the 8,544 foot runway. An air traffic controller observed the airplane, a Piper Cherokee 180 become airborne after rolling between 2,500 and 3,000 feet. Witnesses reported the airplane pitched up, and down several times and was flying slowly as it climbed between 100 and 200 feet AGL. While still over the runway and out of ground effect, the airplane commenced a steep 45 to 90 degree left bank and crashed into a field 900 feet east of the runway. Wreckage and ground impact signatures were consistent with the aircraft having collided with the terrain while in an 80 degree left bank. No mechanical malfunctions during the preceding 20 month long period since the pilot received the private pilot certificate. He had flown for six hours. His total experience in the Piper airplane was 3.1 hours, of which 1.4 had been a checkout flight given by a CFI. The CFI reported he had not checked out the pilot at a high-density altitude airport. The calculated density altitude was about 8,570 feet. Probable cause, the pilot's failure to maintain adequate airspeed during initial climb under high-density altitude weather conditions and a resulting inadvertent stall spin, factors which contributed to the accident were the pilot's overconfidence in his personal ability and lack of experience flying the airplane. Uh, So, yeah, overconfidence combined with lack of experience is a deadly mix. This airplane was not overweight, but the high elevation and hot July afternoon temperatures joined forces and the wings, propeller, and engine were gasping for air and could not do what the pilot asked them to do. So, I don't know. I, when I read that, I just thought, you know how, like, okay, obviously, if I'm at a place where the, the density altitude is 8,000, whatever it was, I, I'm going to be paying attention to that. 
all that being said, especially when you when you're in training aircraft that are often 140 or 160 horsepower, even a 180 kind of feels like you know, like I've got some room to you know play with here and then, you know, reasonable useful load and all that. I don't know, you just feel like it's a pretty decent powered air powerful enough aircraft. 8,500 foot runway, you just feel cuz what what struck me about it was you kind of only think about getting off the ground if you're just at a glance considering all those things, but that climb There's rate more. Yep. is a lot more going on there. But, but anyway, I just thought, gosh, you know, to be in a reasonably powered aircraft that is not overweight on an 8,500 foot runway, it seems, you know, almost hard to imagine that that would, would, you know, I don't know, without doing the calculations or really thinking about it. Yeah you, so you could back, yeah, you could back up and think, I mean, it's easy. These are all armchair quarterback things, but you could say, well, do you wonder how much, uh, cal- how much performance calculation did he do um, in terms of, did, did he know? And I think I saw uh, Ben Singer nailed it. Um, you know, if not off by this point abort, did he, did he do his calculation? Right. He know what, did he know what his ground run should have been? Uh, did he lean? appropriately right. for the altitude that you know you you're always you get pounded in your training like mixture full rich for takeoff well not at eight thousand feet um yeah. it's not you lean for best power i mean was that a factor um mm-hmm. but yeah it could definitely be things that you you know you could get complacent about you just look at the long runway and you think oh man I, you know this is i'm golden yeah well and also just the idea that I think it's important for new, newer, you know, we're all new, but you know what I'm saying? Like really, really brand new certificated pilots to, uh, especially when you get checked out in a new plane, you know, do <laughs> build up slowly uh, as you're gaining experience and don't do things that are new to you or new environments or new circumstances, you know, too quickly. Um, so yeah, there's a lot there. And the fact that he was in a bank, you know, I don't know what the layout is there, or if there was some terrain or, you know, something that he was looking at, but, um, you know, the other thing obviously there is, you know, if you're having a, a problem with power and you're already committed to the takeoff and you don't have any runway remaining, you better, you know, it seems like straight and level as best as possible is going to be what you want to go for. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting scenario to uh, to ponder because, uh, like I said, I fly a Cherokee 180. So, what are what are what is everybody else saying here? Oh, there's some good questions. Uh, one dog geek says, "What are your um, density altitude personal minimums in your plane?" I haven't thought. I don't have them uh, because I haven't thought about them because I don't fly anywhere that it's a factor. I mean, it's even even here on the worst summer days. I mean, we think we certainly think about it at Fairmont, right? Because we have a it's under three thousand foot runway with an obstruction at the end, uh, and in underpowered airplanes with full fuel. I mean, we we've cut it close. Uh, but the first summer I was training with my instructor in five two Lima. Um, my first lesson was in July and it was like hot and the, they always kept the tanks full and it was me and him. Thank God Tyler's a, a little dude. We, um, we, I felt like we were picking our feet up, trying not to hit the fence at the end of the hill when we left the airport. And so from that mm. moment forward, we kept the tanks at half. So then still to this day, there's 10 gallons aside in this airplane. We just keep it that way. Um, so 
from that moment forward, I definitely thought about it here at Fairmont. Um, there hasn't been a case. I mean, uh, I can't think of a time. I'll think about it in the summer and do my calculations here. But um, you do get a little spoiled. You move up to like the Cherokee 235, right? And we, we look at it here and go like, it wouldn't matter if it was 115 degrees. Um you know, we would just be like, let's go. I mean, it feels like it would just get out of here. But, you know, our, our field elevation here is a thousand feet. So it's it's really hard for it to get to a point where it's super, um, super crazy. But that's a good question. I haven't thought about it much. So probably your case, thing, too, right, Brian? Because you're. Well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, but I also, I think if I, I think if, this is not to say that you shouldn't think about these things. If you're just a renter, you should obviously think about these things, but I feel like the likelihood of me being in a scenario like that uh, is going to be if I own a plane, because then I'm, I'm actually pushing useful load and, you know, trying to go and being in far away places where the, you know, going to Arizona or whatever, it doesn't mean that stuff, you know, by the way, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these other scenarios outlined in this are there's one just prior in the book that's from South Carolina and they make a point to say this can happen anywhere. Right. So um, it's not just about when you're at Tahoe. Um, right. So yeah, I've never really had to think about it because I've just never been anywhere remotely close to loaded up. And, um, and I haven't been, you know, doing super short runways or I don't know. So uh, I've never really been that, uh, concerned about it, but this is a reminder to sort of maybe come up with that. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. We've definitely, one. I've definitely done it. I've taken off in the 150 at max gross weight out of here. It was also like two degrees Fahrenheit, and you know it was not a factor. And then five two Lima, I've had close. I've had my wife and daughter uh, before, but it was also in the winter. Um, yeah. But I like uh, one, uh, Stinky Weasel said in here he won't fly this plane with his wife and kid beyond 75 degrees it's you just it, at clarksburg we would i mean i've had contingency plans actually where we were going to go somewhere we ended up getting weathered out we were going to take it somewhere and i said well, i may have to pick you up at clarksburg you yeah. know just because it's you know it is a, it's an eight thousand foot runway with you know without an obstruction and we could get out of there safely but i would have had questions about doing it for fresh so i guess i guess that's not true to say i haven't thought about it there have been cases where it's where we've thought about it so fly sport says what are your top learnings from the killing zone mine is it's always fuel and adm of hey watch this <laughs> yeah i mean uh, yeah okay i may have mentioned this at some other time but um when i was training and uh while i was training i was reading the killing zone and there's an example in there where two two pilots um stopped somewhere, got fuel, got in the plane, took off, and then had fuel exhaustion because they each thought the other put the fuel caps back on and they didn't see them or check them. And those were the the two things in one sort of episode there were, were really, I think, the things that stuck out to me the most, not necessarily just even specifically, but more... Um, more symbolically or emblematically in the sense that I read that and I thought, especially in the 172, you can't, you got to make an effort to go, you know, when you get the plane fueled up at a full service thing, like we do in training all the time, you got to go, you got to make sure that those caps are back on. I got in the plane once uh, with my CFI for a lesson and 
they had just fueled the plane and we were part that they, they had to they're doing a lot of construction so they had the plane pushed off in a place that normally wasn't there were a lot of things that were sort of weird and it just kind of had me thrown off of my pre-flight game or i don't know something you know how it is when you're a student especially it's like one little change and you're like i don't even know where i am anymore but um <laughs> uh, anyway we actually got in we had just sort of kind of gotten in the plane and started to fidget for seat belts or whatever and i realized that i had not checked the gas caps I had sumped, I had done all the other things, but I had not checked the gas caps um, after they had fueled the plane. And I got up, I said, you know, and it's kind of like you're already kind of buckled in, you know, it's a choice to go, I'm getting back out of the plane. Not a huge deal, but it is sort of like in your consciousness. And uh, and I was like, hold on, I'm going to go check this. And he was like, great. And I went and they had left one of the fuel caps off. And I was like, wow, because I had just read the thing a few days before. And so I just thought, okay, this can happen at any time. And we would have been fine, obviously, you know, but it wouldn't have been great. And, um, and then the other thing about it was the two pilot thing, you know, and I had somebody else tell me on the field once and a very experienced pilot. He said, there's nothing more dangerous than a plane full of pilots. And it was really operating on that same sentiment. So those are the things I think from the, the killing zone that have stood out to me the most. Uh, wow. This ended up being sort of like a killing zone episode, but um, uh, yeah. So those, to answer the question, those, th- that's really it. This has been the killing zone brought to you by Brian. <laughs> cool. That's a good segment. We should, we should keep doing that. Yeah, um, but- I- I don't know. I mean, I think I read a lot of it and think so I have to put myself in a lot of those positions too, because a lot of them, I think it's easy to think um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, But I do think, I think the overarching theme, like someone else mentioned in here is that it's like complacency is just, you you just can't ever, you can't take a day off of, um, of the routine or the things that you normally check just because you, you know, you just can't, it even, it happens even in, you know, in our flying club situation. Like, I mean, I've, I've come in here and found, I found the gas caps off of five, two Lima after the plane was put away. Now, how's that happen? I tell you, somebody fueled it up and taxied it over here with the caps off and just left them, you know, sitting on the wings. That, that makes me nervous for a whole other reason. Like how long have they been, has it been sitting in here with the gas caps open? Like right. how many bugs are in here? What all's, you know, what's happened? Anyway, what's, but yeah, I just think complacency just, you know, you just can't take, can't take a day off ever. Um, yep. Don't make exceptions. It's, those are the ones that get you the one time you say like, well, this is technically doesn't meet my minimums, but I can, this is, this time it's okay because of this well that's those are the ones that that'll get you all right ben um, asked us and we did not do it so now he's typing in all caps question okay I, I see it ben i see it ben we will get to we will get to that question in one moment um uh i do want to answer one dog geeks question who uh, back to uh, when i said i had to syria fly in the left seat and i flew in the right seat how was right seat flying how hard oh, was yeah. that getting used to it's terrible there's nothing good about it to the CFIs. I don't know how you make that transition. Like it's, it's horrible. And it's not just what you think. Like 
I would obviously never, I, I had had three or four landings prior in the right seat with another pilot from the club. So it's not like I had never done it, but that's all the time I had. It was enough to know that I could absolutely safely land this airplane from this seat. Like it was not, it was not a safety problem. You know, you think like, oh, it's just my sight picture. It's just like the left to right sight picture when you land. Oh, no, it is so much more than that. Everything is weird. Just the fact that you're controlling the yoke with your right hand. That's yeah. bizarre. And why does the throttle feel weird when it's over here? Yeah. And like um, everything feels weird. You're round out and flare. It's not just left to right. It's like the sight picture of everything is weird. Um, so I need to get a bunch more time at it before I feel super good about it. Yeah. Uh, but no, it also, is the parallax is, of the gauges as well. Yes. Everything is different. It's uh, it is. Um, it's a good skill to have probably because there will be times where you'll want to fly with somebody else and somebody's got to sit in the right seat. So, you know, you ought to get when you're out with a pilot friend. I mean, you got that'd be a good thing for any of you guys to do. If you're out with other pilot friends, go do some pattern work where you trade off landings and you always got somebody else in the left seat, you know, a competent pilot yeah. that can yeah. help you out if you need it. But like, it's probably a good skill to have to be able to fly from either seat and just feel comfortable in doing it. But it's worth <laughs> it. But it's, it's weird. It's like, feel like you've learned how to fly. Would you like to learn how to fly all over again? Exactly. <laughs> you, can, you too can have the experience of learning how to fly all over again. Uh, exactly. no, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'd like to try it. I mean, you know, why not? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Good challenge. All right. You, you want to answer Ben's question? Oh yeah. Yeah. Ben Singer question. What are your lottery planes? So you win the lottery. What, what airplane are you buying? <laughs> By the way, just side note, if everybody can see here, the way to get a question answered for sure is to type <laughs> question in all caps. It's, I don't think it's passive aggressive, but it's close, Ben. It's close. No. Um, all right. Go ahead. What, what do you got? I, I, you know, it, it sounds funny. I, I am probably, I'm sticking in these little planes. I'm probably, a, I'm probably staying in a 150 or 172. My, my whole thing, of course, I already own, I own a 235 doesn't really fit my mission it's great because we lease it to the club and it's working for the club but like when when it became obvious that my wife wasn't going to want to fly on trips and do a lot of those things it kind of changed my perspective i think on what would be a good plane i mean i don't mm -hmm. need i don't need a traveler really i need mm -hmm. something i can hobby in something i can operate for reasonably cheaply and that i'm comfortable in that i enjoy flying so i so pick one I, or pick two i i'm probably i'm staying at the 172 i think is my probably my plane now, okay, boring, lottery, know, a lottery 172 would be what? Like, would that be G1000 kind of thing or, you know, yeah, uh, like a yeah, brand new I, one that costs? I'd get like, a new one. Yeah, I'd get a new one. Yeah. I'd get a new one. You know, you won the lottery. Get a new, get one. A new one. Absolutely. I'd get a new one. The plush seats and the, you know, they don't come with ashtrays anymore, but still. Um, yeah. So I think for me, I, I feel the same way. It's like. I mean, I've often said like with cars, right? Every time I see somebody with like a supercar or an incredibly expensive car, all I can do in my, all I do in my mind is think how many old eighties Toyotas could I buy? <laughs> like, you know, this guy bought a Bentley. I could have bought, you know, like a warehouse full of eighties Toyotas and that would make me so much happier than having a Bentley. So, um, so I think in airplanes, it's kind of the same thing. Um, uh, our friend Adam had a great idea. You know, he said that, you know, if he could buy a plane that w what would make sense to him to do is to get an early 
um, Cirrus that's all steam gauge. And I thought that's actually not a bad idea, but I'm not a Cirrus guy. I like the old school stuff. I like the just, you know, it looks like plain in the dictionary kind of stuff. I, I really, really love flying the, the Archer 180. And I feel like that that is the sweet spot for me. It's a low wing. It's, you know, reasonable fuel burn, um, reasonable, useful load, mm-hmm. all of that. You know, I might say uh, an Archer, um, but at the same time, I also, okay, if I can buy more than one, uh, I would get, I would get a, <laughs> I'll get an Archer. Okay. I would buy three. I would get an Archer for like, you know, that's like the Toyota Camry kind of thing. Uh-huh. Then I would get a, um, I would get a, uh, a Cardinal. Oh, um, a Cardinal. Okay. I changed my answer. <laughs> I'm changing my answer. Yeah. Lose the I struts. Would, Lose the struts. Right. And, and give me that view, you know, and, and um, I don't know. I think the, the Cardinal itself is such a fascinating story, how they just got the engineers together and they said, make a better 172. And they did. It had some problems, but they kind of did. And then nobody, people were like, I don't know. It's like SM57 microphones or whatever the, whatever the standard is for anything. People right. just go, well, that's the standard. And I don't feel comfortable moving beyond that. You can tell me it's better all day. I don't want better. I want the standard. All right. All so right. uh, anyway, I would get a Cardinal and... Um, that would be sort of you know my aerial photography and videography plane, and then I would uh, also have an arrow, and that would be my long flight, you know, retractable, high performance kind of. Uh, so I'd have an arrow, a cardinal, and an archer. Okay, it's a good lineup. One dog geek asks, "This is a this is an interesting question. I think uh, if considering an airplane partnership, what are the obvious and subtle characteristics that you'd want in a potential partner? What obvious and subtle things do you want to avoid?" Man, I think that's an inter- that's that's an interesting question. Um, it depends, I guess, on how active. I mean, I guess it depends on a couple things. So. We we did ours kind of weird. There are two other partners in the plane that I own. Ours is a little bit different. Uh, a disclaimer is that it's you know it's in a full on exclusive use lease back to this flying club. So effectively, we bought this plane and then gave up all rights to it. It's basically like you know it's technically ours, but like we don't control anything about it. How it gets used, who uses it, how it's maintained. Uh, I have to schedule it like everybody else. So it's not exactly like I'm just sharing time with these two other guys in a plane. Ours was very much a business relationship. Like we just needed three people to come together to make it work businessly. Um, They were people that I knew already, which was helpful. Um, People that we all got along and, you know, had the same kind of intentions for the, what the plane was going to be for us. I don't know how much all of that matters in, terms of i mean i think you want to find someone who's like um gonna have the same kind of amount of respect for the airplane in terms of just you know taking care of it and you know doing things the right way if they're a way that lines up with how you want to do them maybe the same vision for um the kind of investment you want to make in it like i wouldn't want to go into partnership with somebody who's like i've got the 
twenty thousand dollars I need to come in, but like I'm not spending a penny more to upgrade a thing. And when you're meanwhile, you're thinking like, I don't know, I'd like to put two G fives next year and then a um you know a autopilot the next year. I mean, I think you want to have some idea of people's like goals during the time that you're going to be in this together. And one thing I'll say, this isn't about the characteristics of, of a person, but I think it's very important that when you form this partnership with these people that you formalize a buy-sell agreement that explicitly outlines how people come in or go out of the airplane. And what I mean by that is if partner B wants out of the plane next year, are you the other two going to buy them out at the current fair market value of the plane or is it at the value that we bought it? The details it doesn't have to be contentious. Just put them on a piece. It doesn't have to be super formal. Get them on paper somewhere. Everybody sign it and have it notarized and have a document that says this is how we handle in and out. Just so there's no um, ambiguity to it when that circumstance arises. Um, I just think maybe finding people who have the same kind of vision for the plane. Um, one of my par- partners is actually in the chat right now, LOLing at my advice because he's LOLing because <laughs> it's something we've been talking about doing the whole time and we haven't done it yet. Um, <laughs> but we don't have a buy-sell agreement. And we've been talking about it. But um, yeah, I just think finding people who have kind of the same like mentality of how you want to deal with the asset that you've purchased together over the time is probably the most important to me, I guess. I hope that's helpful. I, I'm not a huge expert in the matter. Like I said, our circumstance is pretty unique in that it's a lease back. So it's, um, yeah. And I'll second what Mike Hines says. AOPA was amazingly helpful um, setting up the partnership, invaluable research. We didn't do that for buying the plane, but I used AOPA a ton in their flying club division for assistance in setting up this club. Mm-hmm. And they were immensely helpful in that regard too. So they are a great resource. If anyone's not an AOPA member, I cannot uh, stress enough the value that can come from that. Um, They're a good organization that are doing really good things for GA. So, and uh, Mike Hines is saying that he's got, uh, he's got a Cardinal and it's, he's based uh, North of Huntsville. So uh, Mike Hines, I'm calling you out right now. You have to come to John tune and give me a ride in my lottery plane. And uh, you know, look, if you're, if you're open to it, I've got I've got a thousand dollars right now that we can write up a little notarized a little something. <laughs> I was just at Huntsville over Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving visiting the in-laws, and uh, I was looking for something to do. So I have to remember Mike's uh, Mike's yeah. nearby. Yeah, we need we need some good Huntsville contacts. Yeah, it's a hop, skip, and a jump really from from John Tune. So especially yeah. in a cardinal. So yeah, for sure. You know, Come up next time you're up here for a bachelorette party. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Nashville has become a like David Byrne had this great line about um. He said uh, he feels like an advertisement for a version of himself. That's what Nashville has become is an advertisement for a version of itself. Um, that's my cultural commentary. A uh, little interstitial piece before we get into the skycatcher. Todd says, uh, anybody ever fallen a sky catcher? Likey, yeah. no likey? Uh, I'm sure that um, Timestamp Tedder could give all kind of input on the sky catcher. He flew a sky catcher at the uh, Nobody Cares Flying that we had down in Nashville uh, over, over the fall. And yeah. um, we all sat in it. And I didn't get to fly in it or go anywhere in it. But I did find, I found the seating, like the... Uh, the where your legs are and where things are to be very strange and peculiar. 
um, I think it would have been fun to fly. Like it, I, I think it would have been pretty cool, but it, it was uh, definitely different. Yeah, it's kind of like being in like a 1977 MG or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And your leg—it's just weird because the sitting position is just your legs are just sort of straight out, like you're you're just sitting at an L uh, position. Your legs don't go down any really anywhere. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I also thought it was really cool, and I'm also just looking at it like, wow, some of these avionics are you know nicer than a yeah. lot of planes I fly. But that's yeah. but they're pretty rare, right? I guess Ted Ted knows about this, but. Yeah, there's not that many of them, and uh, I guess that's another one of the planes where they thought that that would become the new uh, uh, sort of training airplane that everybody can manage to have, and it just never really fully took off. But I, but that was out of Smyrna, so right out of the area here. There's one, there's one for rent, and uh, and some video I think of uh, Ted <laughs> being uh, blown like a leaf or. <laughs> <laughs> and and handling it well ted you know we've always given ted a lot of props because you know we we think that we're getting some experience here and then we look at ted's resume and he's flown you know a hundred different planes but if you uh go back to our audio archives we we put out a little sort of bonus episode in december that was basically ben the sage and timestamp ted are talking about the value and the sort of the pros and cons of taking a, you know, if you're a newer pilot or you have some share of hours, whatever you have, Ben's got more than any of us, but just the idea that is it better necessarily that you have more time in one plane or what are the pros and cons of that versus Ted having, you know, Ted's got, you know, 1.7 in uh, most planes ever made or something, you know, (laughs) so uh, uh, is it check out flight King? Uh, But, uh, but yeah, so that's a cool thing to go back and check out. But yeah, that's yeah, Ted Sky Skycatcher. He flew. I, I still love that story. That that one still to me is one of the greatest. Ted flies commercial all the way across the country from like Washington to Atlanta, hitches a ride with Ben Singer in his one eighty two to Smyrna. We're all gathering already in Nashville. Drops Ben drops Ted off at Smyrna, so Ted can get checked out in the 162. Newly licensed sport pilot Ted like gets checked out in this uh, Skycatcher. Has like the world's longest Skycatcher checkout flight probably <laughs> ever known to man. We were watching him on Flight Aware, and it was like, what are they putting him through? So he like gets checked out in this thing. Um, it's getting it's getting dark. He flies into John Toon, crazy Nashville inner airspace, and then meets us. Still makes it in time for dinner. And I'm like, that dude is like inspirational. Like it, I just <laughs> yeah. that was the craziest. Yeah. Oh yeah. And Evan's son, Evan's son Sam, the CFI was the checkout uh, was the checkout pilot for him in that checkout flight. Crazy, just cra- what a crazy crazy adventure that was. So we need to, we need to do a uh, so. After this, there is going to be a sort of a private, but we'll perhaps share some of this with the greater audience later if we get permission. Um, there's gonna, Evan's going to be breaking down his uh, instrument check ride, and um, and his son Sam, uh, CFI, will also be uh, CFII. Will will be involved there. I, we you know what we need to do is we need to question. We need to talk to Sam. About, about, check, about check out yeah. flight. Yes. <laughs> Put it, write it down. That's on the agenda for tonight. <laughs> what? what 
what exactly did Ted do that caused you to have a 2.5? It wasn't 2.5. Like the world's longest sky catcher checkout flight. That's what I want to know. What did it's he like do? Th- there are six levers or buttons in this plane. <laughs> No, it's, it's you want it's another a little beast, pack? you know. You gotta, you gotta know what you're doing. You're flying all these planes. So. I guess, I guess. Uh, well, that but, was good. Uh, yeah, man. Is anybody else got any quick ones for us? Um, see, now all the questions are just for Ted. Yeah, Ted's taking over the Ted, <laughs> Ted's taking over the over the over the chat room here. No, I think that's probably a wrap. Um, yeah. should remind everybody, I know we do this every podcast, but if you're an audio-only uh, podcast subscriber, thank you. Um, be sure to uh, subscribe to the podcast and then leave a comment or review if you can on the Apple site. But also, if you want to be part of this crazy fun that is our chat room, we uh, record this thing every other Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Midlife Pilot YouTube channel. And uh, we love, we've got such a great group of people here. Um, this uh, little community and it's super fun um, to, to join in with this. So be sure to join us if you can on Wednesdays for, uh, for the live recording. We publicize it everywhere we know to do that. Yeah. We're, we're not exactly the best at promoting what we're doing, but we, we try. And then also um, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are in the top 20 of aviation podcasts and that yeah. includes some, you know, pretty heavy hitters, you know, uh, that, I've never heard of. And then some other heavy hitters that I have heard of. So let's just keep this thing going organically. Pretty awesome. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, let's wrap it up here. It was great uh, podcasting with you. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll record again on March 1st, Wednesday, March 1st. will be our next recording night and uh, topic to be determined. Stay tuned for that. We love the anticipation of never knowing what's coming up next. <laughs> <laughs>